Musical stylings for ITP, aka In the Pocket, are provided by Graphic Millet. His music is available where fine music is sold. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers, who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In the Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In the Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. This special episode of In the Pocket presents the incomparable Marcia Minter, co-founder and director of Indigo Arts Alliance. She is also a member of the Maine's Art Commission and serves as a trustee to both the Portland Museum of Art and Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. Marcia will share with us how Indigo Arts Alliance has grown since its inception in 2019. Growth from the original residency program to hosting symposiums. This episode is a companion piece to the Indigo Arts Alliance Slavery Symposium, Art in the Wake, Reckoning and Remembering, which is occurring from May 19th to May 20th in Portland, Maine. Marcia's monologue is provided by Curious Story Lab. And if you want to be in touch with Marcia Minter, please check out Indigo Arts Alliance on all social media, everything. Please enjoy. Working across a variety of disciplines, um, the visual arts, the performing arts, and the creative writing arts. And, and those visiting artists come from different parts of the United States, as well as the diaspora. And, and I think in terms of the big picture, I wanna make sure that I'm really clear about our distinguishing factor as a residency program. There are a couple of things that make us unique. One is that our residency is exclusively for black and brown creatives. And so by black, we are talking about our descendants of, of Africans from the continent and that have been dispersed to various places in the diaspora. When we talk about brown, we are talking about indigenous peoples. We're talking about North American indigenous folks. We are also talking about people that are indigenous to other parts of the world. I think Aboriginal would be a good example, one that most people think of, but there are indigenous folks in various parts of the world that have been really impacted by colonialism. We are also talking about people from Southeast Asia, Pakistan and India and in other parts of Asia, particularly those countries in Asia 
that free slave trade were blended with Africans. And there are many places around the world like that. And so that definition doesn't mean that our residency is basically for anybody non-white. It's not. It is really for people that have been, whose communities, whose ethnicities, whose geographies have been significantly impacted by colonialism in ways that have caused those individuals to be marginalized historically and continue to experience racism and marginalization to this day. And so for the residency here at our Cold Street studio based in Portland, Maine, another unique characteristic is that we are right in the city of Portland. Now, Portland is not New York City or Chicago, but it is Maine's largest city and most diverse city. And it is, our residency is located in a historically Black and, and Indigenous and multiracial neighborhood in Portland that is only 10 minutes from the airport. So we are not located in the Maine woods. We're not on the ocean. We are very close. Everything is close to the ocean in Maine, but we are not in one of those bucolic places where you go to your residency and you don't see anyone other than the other artists that might be there um, the entire time. We intentionally created this residency to be situated in a city because so often when Black folks are in residency wherever, it is in one of those far-flung, beautiful places. Don't get me wrong, I love going to those places myself, but oftentimes we're the only one there during the residency and the areas in which they are located, there are not often communities of color. So we, our entire experience is one of isolation and further marginalization. And so we wanted to have a residency where people would come they would be in a space that honored who they are, that understood them on some level intrinsically. And when they left the space and walked around and explored the city, they would see other people that looked like them. And they would have an opportunity to engage directly with communities and people in a variety of ways. And in addition to the actual residency experience that provides time and space for an artist to come and work in their practice. We also are oftentimes working with artists who really want to be in community with people, that their work is rooted in social justice or has a very kind of either activist or their work has a connection to humanity in ways that is fed by being in relationship with people. And so that is why we have the word alliance at the end of our name. It is because we are here to build alliances, both interculturally and cross-culturally. I mentioned that we have two programs earlier, and I only talked about one so far. Not only do we bring visiting artists but when they are here, we pair them with a New England-based artist. So those two artists are in residency at the same time. We used to call that our mentor-mentee model, 
But we never really were satisfied with that language because our goal wasn't to be didactic with teacher kind of model. And it also wasn't intended to be hierarchical, having an old person with a young person. And it never has been, actually. The intention was that it would really be, again, in service to this idea that it's important for us to be able to build networks within our own communities and to be able to have a relationship of reciprocity where we are growing and learning from each other as colleagues along the way. And that can be as valuable intergenerationally as it can be multidisciplinary. Before I talk about the second residency, we are moving into our 2023 season and we have a fantastic cohort of incoming artists. We have our first artist coming actually in April is an indigenous artist. Her name is Janice George and she is Suquamish coming from Canada and she is a master weaver and textile artist. And so we are thrilled to have her and she will be sharing her residency time with a New England-based Indigenous artist from the Passamaquoddy Nation. And then coming in May, we have Meghna Singh. Meghna Singh is originally from Southeast Asia, and in her practice, she is actually a visual artist with a PhD in visual anthropology from the University of Cape Town, South Africa and her work is in filmmaking and photography and virtual reality. And she most recently had work in the Venice Biennale Film Festival. And then coming in June, we have Ariane King-Colmer. Ariane is based in Charleston, South Carolina, and, and she is a multimedia textile artist designer and educator specializing in indigo dyeing and batik. We are thrilled to have her. She spends a lot of time. She's also a recipient of a fellowship at the Linden Sculpture Garden. And we have been wanting, of course, since we opened to have an indigo dye master here. And so she will be with us in June. And then in July, we are super thrilled to have Diedrich Brackens who is an LA-based painter and textile artist from Texas originally, who holds a Master of Fine Arts from CalArt. And, and he it has totally blown up. While he works in weaving, he weaves what other artists would paint on canvas. So his weavings actually look like painting. They are very conceptual, and very personal narratives stemming from his life as a queer Black artist. And his work most recently has been in the Whitney and, and many other incredible museums. And he's the recipient of the Lewis Comfort Tiffany Foundation Award in 2019. Then closing us out, when we bring in, there is one artist that typically comes from away who stays for two months. And for both the months of September and October through no beginning of November, 
we have Pape Ibrahima Ndaye. He is a choreographer and performance movement-based artist who was originally from Senegal, and he has a dance company in, called Kyolac. He's currently based in Paris, and his dance company has performed all over the world, really. And so he will be in residence solo, thinking through choreography and performance art pieces. So that's our, our incoming visiting artist cohort. And typically the pairings that are put with each artist are determined every, about every two months. We will we announce who those individuals would be. Okay, so now the second residency that I mentioned is called our David C. Driscoll Fellowship at Black Seed Studio. And I think that the last time we talked, we probably talked a lot about David Driscoll, who was one of our mentors and was our elder advisor for Indigo Arts Alliance, who had his second home and studio here in Maine. And, and so we, we established the second residency program and fellowship in his name. And, and we have, this is going into the third year of that residency. That residency provides three months of free studio space and time at a second location in Portland that is strictly for Maine-based artists that are black and brown. And so our current artist in residence there is a, a man named Kevin Zickes. And, and Kevin is a painter, self-taught painter, it, whose work is emerging and, and has already shown in some really wonderful exhibitions, including Dowling Walsh Gallery and the Center for Maine Contemporary Art. And then we have had, I think probably two, three, somewhere around six or seven Driscoll Fellows today. We typically have three Driscoll Fellows a year, and they receive an additional stipend to go along with their residency. So for the Indigo Studio Residency Program, that, for the visiting artists, that is a nomination-based process. We have an artist-in-residency committee that is made up of Indigo Arts Alliance advisors, including Michelle Washington and also community members and people within those of the art world nationally and internationally. And once a year, we choose a selection of about four to five of those folks. We ask them to each nominate someone for the residency. And so after they are nominated, we then extend a letter of invitation to those individuals to apply. And so they submit their applications. Actually, I think it's gotta be more than four or five, because we usually, I think this past season, we had about 13 applicants for five slots that were nominated. The once they are invited to apply, they apply through our, port, our application portal, the standard materials. And then those applications and those materials are vetted by a jury that is a different set of people from the people that nominated. And then the jury, based on the package that was submitted for application, narrows it down essentially to a group of folks that will ultimately be selected for that cohort for the year. So that's how that one works. 
And then once that visiting artist cohort is selected, then we begin the search for the regionally based artists that would be in residency alongside the visiting artist. And that is an open application process that is reviewed by a jury. And, and that selection is based on compatibility with one of the artists in the cohort for that year. For the Driscoll Fellowship, that is also an open application process, and that application is open once a year as well. It used to be open seasonally, but we moved to having it be open once a year so that for both residencies, the cohorts can be determined for the entire year, and we can just move into making sure our residents have what they need, and we can plan all of the wonderful public programming that runs alongside their residencies. The programming is done in alignment with the selected artists and residents. So for, I would say, 95% of our programming that we do throughout the year is programming that amplifies the artists that are in residence with us. For example, when Sonia Clark was in residence with us, she, in addition to her own time as an heir, her public engagement activities were, she did a cyanotype dye workshop. She did an artist talk and she did some studio visits with artists in the area. We had a visiting artist from Brazil who's a performance-based artist and she did a performance piece at the end of her residency where she cooked, prepared, and then presented a whole performance around the food, the similarities and differences across food in the, in the diaspora that was all done in silence. And it was really beautiful. 90% of that programming or more, 95% is brainstorming with the artists. What do you want to do other than your work? <laughs> What else do you want to do? And they tell us and we help make it happen. And it's always free to the public. Sometimes it's both virtual and in person. Sometimes it's one or the other. In our first year of opening, we were approached by Paul Sacarides, the then executive director of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. We, Daniel Mentor, and I had a prior relationship with Paul, so he knew of our work and trusted in the vision of Indigo and said, you know what, Haystack is really thinking about how we engage more actively with diverse populations, but also how we engage more actively with our community, period. That is not something that had been top of mind for them really previously until they were really working on revisiting kind of their goals, their internal goals. So they said, or Paul said, Think about that. And basically, all I want to do is give the campus over to Indigo. And so we were like, okay. And so we went back to our team at Indigo, a team of which included a couple of board members and our staff, and ideated what would we want to do. And we said, we want to bring together Black and Indigenous folk in the spirit of really honoring and recognizing all of the things that we share in common that are relative to 
what it means to be human in the world and how we hold it together and how we have in both of our cultures been able to sustain and to thrive because it's not, we didn't want to come together and just have a, have conversations about all the horrible things that have happened. We wanted to talk about the past, present and the future. And so we started to think about how do we do that in a way that's going to be really safe? And what we decided it was that we were going to hold Haystack accountable to that notion that they were going to give the campus over. That meant there would be no Haystack staff or Haystack affiliated individuals on campus for the entire five days that we were there with the exception of any staff members that we were that we needed from an operational standpoint and even then we limited that to a, for a very low number and so we developed the idea of course inspired by the notion of a family reunion of the opportunity that we don't often have as black and indigenous people to love on each other and so we named it reunion daniel came up with the name re-editioning black and native histories. We were trying to play off of Haystack Mountain School of Crafts being this place that people go to who are leaders in the field of various fields of craft and oftentimes are editioning work. And we were like, we're coming there to re-edition the false narratives that have been perpetuated about our cultures and our communities and to kind of reimagine and to share those things that whether it's spiritually culturally, academically, creatively that we're working on and actually share those with each other. We invited seven Black and Indigenous people from across the country, across all of those different disciplines that I mentioned in areas of study, and we had an overwhelming response. Of course, when you invite 70 people, initially you invite twice that many, and we ended up having a waiting list of amazing people and we had to cap it at our 70s. So we filled every bed, every space at Haystack. And it was intergenerational by intent as well. So we had participants there ranging from their early 20s all the way up through their early 80s and all the age ranges and eras in between. And so of that group, all participants were required to stay the entire time because out of the group of participants also came our presenters. And so we had each day was chock-a-block full of options for people to participate in from the 8 a.m. breakfast call to the hang up as late as you want and just get caught up or, or get to know some new people. And we started off each day with thought leaders from the, our Black and Indigenous group of presenters, people like Jessica B. Harris, Scott Barton, Jamie Powell, Marta Morena Vega, Dory Tunt as our thought leaders who kicked off the themes that we had established for the day, for each day. And then after those incredibly inspiring presentations and talks, we would always have a circle or a Q&A. Everyone got to be in conversation. And then we would have breakouts where we had workshops in, you could choose between a workshop in the visual arts, 
or movements or writing or storytelling. And so we had choreographers and dancers, printmakers, woodworkers. We had graphic designers. We had scholars. We had yoga teachers. We had just the whole gamut, but the best of the best people in their respective fields. We even had our own chefs. We brought in our own chefs. We had Scott Barton, who was also a food scholar, was our chef. And he worked with us for months in advance to design a very thoughtful menu of food that represented not only the Black ways of cooking and the special ingredient that are meaningful to us, but also partnered with our indigenous chef, Sherry Pocknett and Scott collaborated and designed the menu that would be a representation and, and serving of, of both of those cultures, food ways. And it was, every meal was exceptional and delicious. And they kicked every meal off with telling us the backstory about why the food was important, what those ingredients were, and, and yeah, it was planes, trains, and automobiles getting everybody there, but we did it. Yeah, it was a three-year planning process, but yeah. And so we were really transparent with all of the attendees along the way throughout the reunion because we want the notion of something like that to be passed on from throughout our communities. And so our hope that we tried to communicate every chance we got to to the participants was, who wants to do it next? <laughs> Who's gonna pick up the baton? So I think that we got some people who said, I would love to pick up the baton. Can you, you've created a blueprint. We will, Indigo will work with whoever's gonna pick up the baton next. And it won't be an every year thing for any organization. But so it's probably gonna be a biennial or triennial type of an event because of the breadth of time it takes to plan something like that. But yeah, we have a couple of organizations that have already said, we're interested in hosting the next one. I don't wanna say who they are because you never know what can change for folks. We had three documentarians there the entire time, seeing all of the things that we were given permission to document. We had beautiful, very private and very intimate talking circles at the end of every day. And of course, we did not document those. At least we did not document them in audio. But we did document, we do have documentation of all of the keynotes and many of the workshops. We are putting final touches on a beautiful video that is a compilation that has been edited together of moments of that time together. Additionally, we are publishing a monograph. The slot in Haystack's annual schedule that we took over is traditionally for Haystack called their annual conference. But every Haystack annual conference since the beginning of their inception, which I think is 50 plus years now, has a monograph associated with it. And so we are in the midst of creating the monograph. And so we are working with a beautiful design firm here in Portland, and we are collecting written reflections, stories, essays, poems from participants of Reunion and the presenters as well, and ephemera 
from all of the participants and presenters and all and plus of course all of the beautiful photography that we have from our documentarians and so all of that will be present will be put together in in the monograph which will be available for sale through both Haystack and Indigo and the proceeds will all go to Indigo Arts Alliance. We have a corporate sponsorship by a Maine-based company called Seabags, S-E-N-A, bags. And all of their bags are made from recycled sailcloths. And they their products are distributed all over the country. They're in a lot of boutique stores, things like that. Expensive tote bag. They're big. They're like a, a large size tote bag, extremely sturdy. The handles are sewn around it through the entire bag. So you could put a block of ice in there and carry it and not worry about it breaking to assert they are waterproof because they're made from sailcloth. And, and the handles are made from the rope that is used to tie down a boat. So extremely sturdy totes. They, I think they retail, I think the, our totes typically retail because they're custom design, limited edition around $200 for a tote because they're all hand, literally hand sewn and made from these recycled sales. Anyway, we were approached by Seabags about two years ago because they were interested in, in supporting us financially as a corporate sponsor. And so the way in which they do that is we design, we've des this tote bag that I have just designed is our third one actually. And, and so it's been one a year uh, for the last three years. This is the third year. And portion of the proceeds for the sale of every tote goes back to Indigo. And I think to date, we've raised, they've raised about $10,000 for Indigo just on the sale of a couple of totes. We actually have done some other collaborations with other artists and residents. So last year we launched a collaboration with Jordan Carey, who was our one of our artists and residents in 2019. We launched a, a capsule that included a denim apron, a beautiful indigo that this is the kind of denim that it like indigo, dark indigo, hardy denim. And so there was a, an apron. There's a pencil case that I use as my catch-all for all kinds of things. There is a tote bag, a denim tote bag that is lined on the inside with a pattern that, that Jordan Carey created that honors black and brown artists. So there's like little mini hand-drawn portraits of people like David Driscoll, Chadwick Boseman, I don't know, just a whole host of folks. So the tote bag is lined with that custom fabric. And what else was in? That was that capsule. And then prior to that, we did a sweatshirt. Also with, with Jordan Carey through Loquat. It's heavy duty sweatshirt fabric in like a charcoal gray and it has a little indigo icon on it. And then what else have we done? And then we did a little limited edition thermos bottle with a past artist in residence, Ebenezer Akapo from Ghana, where it takes some Ghanaian icon symbols. And, and those are the pattern on a water bottle and they say Black Artists Matter. So those, well, that's what I can think of so far that have been custom collaborations, but 
We do intend to do more. And one day, hopefully before the end of this year, we're going to launch a section on our website that will be an e-commerce platform where we can start maybe selling some of our products on our own website, not just through our partners. Let me tell you a little bit about what's coming up. Your calendar and book your ticket. May 20th, we are presenting our first symposium of 2023, which is going to be 2019 and 2020. This is another project that has been three years in the making. We have partnered with the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and we're presenting a symposium that is called Art in the Wake. And it is focusing on reckoning and remembering the global slave trade and New England's role in it as well. So Art in the Wake, I'll read you a little bit of how we describe it. It's a symposium that aims to deeply engage artists and the arts in helping people and communities better understand and grapple with the history and legacies of slavery and forced migration in their lives today by providing a platform to discuss and enact how art can be integrated with other forms of research and knowledge making Art in the Wake will explore the profound role of creative expression in uncovering buried histories and expanding and creating new archives of freedom. It will open a space for crafting new narratives that reckon with the history and legacy of systematic injustice and build new visions for Black freedom, reclamation, and healing for our present and future. And so we have built a schedule working with our partners at NAMAC for Friday. We'll kick off on Friday the 19th with a screening of the film Descendant, based in Africa, telling the story of Africatown and the slave wreck that was discovered there and all that ensued. As a result, we'll have the filmmaker here with us and a resident of Africatown. And that will be moderated by two scholars from NAMAC. All day Saturday, starting at 9 a.m. until 8 o'clock p.m., we will have three panels. We will have a panel on forced migration, where it will be a conversation between our May artist and resident, Meghna Singh, who I told you about earlier, and in another performance-based artist, TVD, moderated by Daniel Dawson. And then another panel later in that day will be a conversation between curator and executive director of the Study for Global Slavery at NAMOC, Paul Gardulo and Johanna Obinda, in conversation with Daniel Minter, who has been commissioned to create the artwork for that exhibition at NAMOC, opening in 2025. So you'll get a preview of that. Another panel later that day called Weaving History and Healing We'll bring together New England-based quilter Jonetta Miller, as well as two quilters and artists working in the quilting tradition, TBD. Some really amazing people. I don't want to name them yet because we're still waiting on final confirmation, but that will be moderated by Dr. Rachel Harding. And then there will be a community care session that will be an interactive activity working with Atlantic Black Box, 
that is an organization of scholars that have been working in the New England area on telling the stories and revealing the truths on New England's role in the slave trade. And then we will have three public art workshops, one taught by Janetta Miller, one taught by a movement-based artist, and a third taught by Daniel Minter. And then we will have incredible food representing West African food traditions made by West African chefs for both lunch and dinner, and that will close us out. So make sure you come. Our roster of participants are coming from all across the country, and so it's going to be really stellar. And then just one other to put a heads up on would be in July, Date TBD, we will also be doing another all-day symposium with the Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens. And that symposium is going to be focused on, on Black and Indigenous relationships with the land. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show.